Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Some of you who are regular listeners to the podcast will recall I spoke with Molly Schultzcock from the Supan Centre um, in, in about the middle of September about the fact that right-wing extremism is gathering steam, not only in the United States, but also elsewhere in the world. Now, why is it more of a concern in places like the US than others? Think about it. Right-wing extremists are able to get their hands on various kinds of firearms, and they can be the automatic weapons like the AR-15s and others that are particularly... um, particularly military-style uh, military arms and threats from those groups need to be taken seriously and we're seeing that emerge uh, both here domestically in Australia in terms of threat analysis but also in the US um, given the recent uh, events over the past nine months with COVID and the way in which right-wing extremists have responded to left-wing extreme activity as well. An organisation that supports the firearm um, possession arguments um, in the US is the National Rifle Association. The NRA is a major lobby. It has used its power to uh, sway politicians and it's done all sorts of things over the years to try and make sure that tougher gun laws aren't implemented in the US a person who's done a lot of work looking at the NRA in recent years is Peter Charlie, who is a part of the investigative team with Al Jazeera. And Peter's got a new book out uh, looking at how to sell a massacre, which chronicles what is a two to three year period of looking at the NRA and a range of issues to do with the way in which it operates. Peter, thank you for joining me. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very good, and congratulations on the book coming out. Thank you very much. appreciate that. Now, before we get into all the intricacies of what um, happened with the documentary series, and I understand a lot went into it, there are people who will be listening to this who won't have come across you previously um, uh, in some of your other work. What would your career look like if you had to sum it up on a post-it note? Well, I've um, <clears throat> I've worked in uh, newspapers, radio, and television um, around the world um, for about forty years. I uh, started as a newspaper reporter on the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, Australia, um, in nineteen seventy-five, and uh, worked on uh, all the Fairfax or most of the Fairfax stable newspapers at the time. Uh, and have worked in uh, television in Australia and uh, the United States and um, worked for National Public Radio in uh, Washington, D.C. I live in Washington, D.C. now. I uh, lead the uh, North American investigative unit for the Al Jazeera Network, and um, that uh, involved uh, the undercover operation you referred to just then, where we infiltrated the National Rifle Association of America using hidden cameras to uh, try to get a sense of what really goes on in that organisation against a backdrop of rising mass shootings in America. Now, going back to you, just just, just taking it one step back, I mean, you've, you've, 
you probably downplayed some of the work you've done because I recall you've had an extensive involvement in television and current affairs. I mean, you, you, you were the producer of Late Line, were you not at one stage? Yeah, I, um, I, I worked as a, uh, a news and current affairs uh, on-air reporter and later as a producer in Australia. Um, and my work as a producer in Australia involved seven years as the executive producer of Late Line at the ABC uh, from uh, 2000 to 2007. And uh, I was then poached by SBS to become the executive producer of the Dateline program at SBS. I uh, worked there for another seven years, uh, leading Dateline up to 2014, when uh, Al Jazeera approached me out of the blue uh, to ask if I was interested in uh, moving to the United States to head up their investigative unit there in the Americas. Um, and I've been there for uh, about six years. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the, TV, uh, the TV experience in Australia uh, did involve, um, you know, quite a lot of time uh, as head of uh, Late Line at the ABC. Yeah, it's a, it's a program I remember well. Uh, and both of uh, I watched it a fair bit when it was on, so it's, uh, it's probably important that we mention it now. Diving, diving straight into how to sell a massacre. It was two hour long episodes um, aired last year. Uh, you won a Walkley for it. What was the first seed or germ of an idea that led you to start this process? When did it begin? Well, I've been thinking about the whole issue of gun violence in America for years. Um, I lived in New York City for 10 years during the 1980s at a particularly violent time. Um, in those days, I lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was a very um, rough and tumble part of town in those days. Lots of gun violence, so I'd often go to sleep at night to the sound of gunshots ringing out uh, around the neighbourhood. Um, New York was cleaned up, um, you know, after that, and it became, um, you know, relatively safe um, in comparison to those days. But right back then, I was uh, very interested in the whole notion of gun violence. And then, of course, the phenomenon of school shootings um, started up. Um, you know, at various uh, high schools and, of course, the tragic event at Sandy Hook in Connecticut um, where so many young children under the age of seven were massacred. Um, so the, I was watching with increasing dismay as gun violence seemed to consume America. Uh, it seemed to be out of control. Um, every time there was another school shooting or a mass shooting of any kind, America would gnash its teeth and wail and talk about thoughts and prayers and, you know, say this is absolutely appalling, this should never happen again, and yet it would happen again. And then it would happen again. <laughs> and then it would happen again. Um, so, you know, there didn't seem to be any way of stopping it. And, uh, of course, right at the forefront, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, is the National Rifle Association representing gun owners of America, um, pushing hard for the sale and ownership of guns, um, you know, fiercely, ferociously pushing the uh, Second Amendment of the US Constitution, which gives American citizens the right to keep and bear arms, uh, and, and really framing the whole gun ownership issue as an idea of freedom, of personal freedom. Um, 
indicating that those uh, who advocate for gun control uh, eating into freedoms, into fundamental US freedoms and really freedoms around the world, really by extension. Um, so, you know, against this kind of crazy series of events, uh, I was very interested in finding out more about the NRA and how they operate, what they think and do. And uh, that's when the germ of an idea, well, as the, the germ that had, had really sort of um, developed um, as I watched um, gun violence increasing um, was sort of planted, a seed was planted, uh, so to speak, um, when I joined Al Jazeera and had the opportunity to engage in sort of long-form investigative journalism uh, with the use of hidden cameras, which is what we were, we were and continue to do a lot of. Um, so there seemed to be the coming together of both the thoughts I had of gun violence and the opportunity to investigate it through Al Jazeera and its, um, uh, its desire or its willingness to support very long-term investigations uh, running into the years uh, and its desire, its willingness to bankroll those sorts of investigations, uh, which is quite unique in the world, I think. I can't think of another television network that would have the, um, the desire uh, or um, the ability to um, support something of that nature, the expense, expense and time required for that sort of investigation. Um, so those things came together and um, the How to Sell a Massacre investigation got underway, ended up lasting three years. And three years is a long time. Now, in, in the world of journalism, we normally try conventional methods to knock on people's doors and have a conversation. Had you tried engaging the NRA in discussion before um, the, you began the process of uh, the covert uh, investigation? I'd, I'd watched um, my colleagues um, attempt on multiple occasions to um, engage with the NRA, um, usually after mass killings. Um, the NRA is, as we found out in the course of the investigation, notoriously um, secretive um, and is very aggressive towards the media. Um, so efforts to, to have a, a, a sort of rational discussion with the NRA about um, the issue of gun control, um, the reasons why gun violence was spiralling out of control, um, these, these are very, very difficult things. It, it struck me that the only way to really get into the heart of the organisation, to examine its finances, to get to know its executives, to uh, determine whether there was any internal dissent, um, all of that sort of thing, which was the, um, the primary objective of this investigation originally, uh, was to um, deploy hidden cameras and to engage in subterfuge um, and to uh, go undercover. Um, and the reason for that is that I, I was convinced there was no other way of determining what was really going on in that organisation. Yeah, essentially, you... They're, uh, the way I read the play from having watched a documentary and, and observing the debate in the US from afar 
is that they tend to be fairly covert. Their arguments tend to be diversionary whenever there's a, there's an incident. Um, and it seems they, as you pointed out during the two hour uh, ep- the, the two hour long episodes rather, um, they seem to have a, a, a deep political influence in the US. Is that something that you found? How did, how did you find that linkage between them and the US as you began to explore the issues? Well, they are very influential um, politically, and um, you know they they represent a base of at least five million people, or so they claim. Um, you know that's five million um, voters uh, in an election. Um, they proselytise the idea of guns being good, guns being necessary to maintain freedom and security in America. Um, you know that's a message that strikes a chord uh, on the political front. Um, you know, uh, we can see it right now with Donald Trump talking about law and order, the necessity for there to be order on the streets when there is such disorder uh, with clashes between extreme left and extreme right, um, you know, lots of street protests and disquiet and discord, um, you know, the, the whole idea of um, let's bring law and order to, to bear. Um, you know, has political capital and has a lot of political purchase. So the NRA's argument that, um, you know, guns are there for self-protection for law-abiding citizens, which is a a term they always attach, um, you know, is uh, quite a potent political message that a lot of politicians are keen to embrace, uh, not to mention the fact that that the NRA uses a very um, effective carrot-and-stick approach in its political dealings where politicians who don't toe the Second Amendment line are punished uh, and those who do are rewarded, uh, often very richly rewarded financially. Um, you know, the NRA poured millions of dollars into Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. Not so much into this particular campaign now because the NRA is actually undergoing its own internal fractions and, uh, you know, fractures, um, internal dissent, and um, there are various problems sort of tearing the NRA, not entirely apart, but tearing at its, uh, at, at its uh, core. Um, so it's, it's undergoing its own, you know, uh, it's experiencing its own traumas right now, undergoing its own transformations. But it's still a very, very powerful force politically. Yeah, the other the other thing that was clear through watching the two hours uh, that that aired here in Australia, I first watched the two episodes on YouTube. By the way, uh, when when they were uploaded by Al Jazeera on, onto onto the site, was the use of rhetorical tools to deflect people from the core of the policy debate. Um, what what observations did you? come away with when you saw the the way in which the NRA laid out the the propaganda lines that they use every time well i was horrified to uh, to hear from um you know our secretly uh, recorded conversations 
um, the NRA providing very clear advice to the One Nation political party, um, and I'm sure they've, they've provided this advice to, uh, to other political parties uh, who have sought their assistance, um, advice on how to, how to deal with uh, um, pesky journalists asking questions. Um, you know, they, they basically laid out their um, blueprint for how to deflect, um, how to suppress um, news, um, how, to, um, uh, how, to, how to attempt to capture the news agenda by engaging the services of ghostwriters and, uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, I was absolutely horrified to hear all these, uh, uh, you know, these tools of, uh, tools of that dark trade, if you like, um, laid bare in these uh, secret recordings. Um, but it all made sense because um, this is exactly what the NRA has been doing in its efforts to smash down media um, interest in um, gun violence, uh, media inquiries about un ongoing gun violence and uh, mass shooting events um, are a real pain for the NRA. The NRA doesn't want these, they're very inconvenient truths. Uh, and the NRA has now a very effective way of dealing with it, which they laid out to One Nation. It was really quite startling and horrifying to see it. Now, the interesting thing about uh the documentary is that I, I suspect the, the liaison with One Nation was what ended up getting uh, you know, Roger Muller, um, you know, as the head of the organisation who set up uh, Gun Rights Australia into the NRA uh, in the first place. Am I correct in my reading of that? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the idea uh, of sending Roger in undercover um, uh, was to, um, well, the, the methodology uh, that, that we used was to create a, an organisation that uh, presented to the NRA uh, precisely the arguments that they, they, um, that they give themselves. So it was basically a clone of the NRA, um, calling itself Gun Rights Australia singing from the same hymn book as the NRA. Uh, so the NRA would see them as brothers in arms and welcome them in. That was the, the whole idea of it, and that worked. Uh, the NRA saw Roger Muller and his Gun Rights Australia group as, as comrades, um, and, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they ushered them through the, through the doors of the fortress. Uh, and once inside, we started rolling with our hidden cameras. So, yeah, I mean, that, that ruse worked. Yeah, um, and it, given it, were they more discursive when One Nation was One Nation uh, guys were present? And I'm, here I'm talking about obviously James Ashby and Steve Dixon, or, or were there other were, were there greater disclosures made with Roger Muller um, himself? Um, I, I think the most striking material that emerged took place when One Nation was there because the NRA uh, saw One Nation as an opportunity to um, uh, spread its message into Australia. Um, this was part of our investigation was to try to look at ways in which One Nation was exporting its ideology to, to places overseas. 
um, this whole ideology of guns being good, guns being necessary and more guns are good. Um, and also um, actively trying to work against gun control measures. So they were very effective in this role in, uh, in Brazil, which had been uh, debating legislation that would have constrained the use of guns in that country. The NRA was so troubled by that that they actually dispatched um, people from the NRA to Brazil uh, to work against that legislation, and they succeeded in doing so. Um, as a result of that, Brazil, Brazil has a, a major gun violence problem. Um, so, um, yeah, they, um, they saw One Nation as a, a way to get into the gun laws of Australia, which uh, the NRA had openly despised, you know, the John Howard's um, gun laws introduced after the Port Arthur massacre. Um, and uh, the NRA, once One Nation was on the scene, was, um, you know, enlivened uh, more so than just with Roger. Um, so, yeah, I mean, more they were much more sort of revelatory, if you like, uh, when One Nation was uh, sitting there with them. One of the interesting things in, in, in all of this, apart from the, the fact that the NRA uh, perceived um, the, the, a political link into Australia being some sort of advantage, um, is the, the manner in which the, the, sort of they seek to branch out. You mentioned the, the issue in Brazil earlier. Um, what are the... In, these things are never done, Peter, solely for sensational purposes. They're done to educate people, right? Um, it's not always obvious when the thing comes out, the sensational coverage, etc., etc. What are the core lessons that you believe um, firstly, policymakers need to take away from the work you've done when it comes to dealing with pressure groups? Well, I think, you know, pressure groups um, uh, like the NRA, um, you know, distort, you know, they're there to distort the truth. Um, uh, you know, I think all um, lobbyists, uh, effectively um, try to define the truth, uh, of course, uh, along the lines that best suit their clients. Um, you know, the NRA was there to um, present uh, a, in my view, completely false sense of reality. Um, that is that um, America is is uh, in a state of um, chaos, um, that uh, crime is out of control, everyone's under threat, um, women are at risk of being raped all the time, um, you know, creating this uh, false sense of uh, danger, um, this social construct that does not really exist. America isn't really like that, and I've lived there for, you know, 16 years. Uh, I know the place well, um, probably um, have spent more like, you know, closer to 20 years there on and off with various assignments. Um, you know, there are danger zones in America, no question about it. There are some parts of America that are extremely dangerous. You know, south side of Chicago, 
uh, parts of Baltimore, New York is becoming more dangerous. You know, there are, you know, South Central LA, there are places that are very dangerous, no doubt about it. But the whole country is not. And the NRA would have you believe that the whole country is. And the only way to really um, keep yourself safe and keep your family safe and um, a woman prevent herself from being raped is to carry a gun, preferably many guns, and uh, be prepared to use them when, uh, when the time comes. Um, that, to me, is a falsehood. Um, and as I say, these lobby groups, these pressure groups, are there to um, present narratives that do not necessarily conform with the truth. Um, and, um, you know, that's what lobby groups do. They twist the truth. They invent uh, so-called alternative truths, as Kellyanne Conway would have it. Um, and they, uh, they push out a narrative that, that is there to best service their clients and to make as much money as they can. So the, the key takeaway is that lobby groups can't be trusted. Uh, and they put, uh, in, in some respects, and this, I don't believe this is an exaggeration, they put democracy at risk, I believe, um, because, you know, they are twisting, um, twisting the reality of what's really going on in the world uh, in order to make money effectively. Mm. There's something out that we've dealt with the, the policymakers side of it. Now, if we're looking at the, the people you and I do the work we do for, when we look through the eyes of look through the eyes of the journalists at things and communicate. What are the people out there um, needing to do, Peter? What should they be thinking about when they're reading material produced by or uh, incorporating the arguments of groups like the NRA and, and to be quite frank, other other organisations that, that, uh, that appear from time to time in, in the media? Well, I mean, in an ideal world, people would be able to look at uh, this sort of material in perspective and see it for what it is. It's, um, you know, it, it is uh, often an exaggeration or a distortion of reality in order to service, uh, you know, a corporate master. Um, but the reality is um, people, you know, America is such a polarised and divided country now. Um, people uh, hear only what their respective echo chambers reflect back to them. Um, it's very rare to find someone who might read NRA material uh, and treat it with some scepticism or look for the other side of the matter. Um, people who read NRA material are probably NRA adherents. And, uh, you know, I joined the NRA at the very beginning of this investigation. Uh, under my uh, real name, gave my real phone number, my real address in Washington, just to see what sort of uh, propaganda they would deliver to me, uh, what, what sort of stuff they'd send to me, what sort of stuff they'd email to me. Um, and sure enough, um, there was a torrent of material that came through. Um, you know, I was getting emails every day from them and uh, <laughs> I was getting um, lots and lots of material being sent to me via the post. Um, you know, the NRA is, it became clear to me just how effective the NRA is at pumping out its propaganda. Um, and, you know, they, they do a very good job of that. They're very good at it. Um, I don't think it's a good thing, but they are very good at it. And, uh, you know, um, 
you know, I think uh, people who uh, at the at the receiving end, most people at the receiving end of that sort of stuff, embrace it wholeheartedly, and they wouldn't think of, um, you know, trying to, you know, get equal amount of material from an anti-gun um, lobby group, um, or you know, anti-gun violence, you know, doctors against gun violence or whatever. I think that's highly unlikely. Um, so, you know, those people are stuck in their own echo, cha echo chambers. Um, as are the people on the other side, you know, the doctors against gun violence would probably not want to receive NRA propaganda, you know, maybe one or two of them do, but most of them wouldn't. So, you know, people are, have taken their sides and nailed their colours to the mast, so to speak, and, um, you know, that's where they are, and that's their position. There's something else that um, I reflect on when we, whenever we see uh, public discourse about yeah, whether it be gun violence, whether it be uh, terrorism, whether it be uh, you know the best way to treat COVID, where um, whether it be you know the, the the debate over national security laws and inhibitions on freedom, there's something that keeps falling back in my mind, and that is what can we in the media do better when we're confronted with with issues that have very deep-seated, polarised views. Is there anything we can do better? Well, <clears throat> look, I, I think, you know, we can take um, a leaf out of the, um, out of the pages, if, if that's the right expression, um, from, um, from, from outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times. The Washington Post, um, you know, has a column um, where they regularly call out um, falsehoods or lies. Um, you know, they just list them and um, they award, as you may be aware, they award so-called Pinocchios uh, hmm. to people who are telling lies. And, uh, um, you know, the Pinocchio is um, uh, drawn in the, in the uh, newspaper as um, the, uh, the, the puppet with uh, the ever-expanding nose <laughs> for every lie it tells. Um, and various Pinocchios are awarded to politicians based on what the newspaper says is a, uh, a genuine fact check. Uh, so, you know, lots of fact checking. The New York Times is doing the same sort of thing. It doesn't award Pinocchios, but, you know, there is a, um, a, a very uh, robust fact checking unit at the New York Times that seeks to strip away the lies and falsehoods and, um, you know, mistruths that spew forth from um, various politicians um, more, uh, in my view, from um, the Trump <laughs> administration and the Trump campaign than the Biden one. But you know, and, you know, I, I dare say Biden is um, distorting the truth himself in in various areas. Um, but the media should be looking straight down the centre uh, and calling out lies whenever it sees them, uh, trying not to take sides uh, where possible. Um, the problem with the U.S. media now is that. You have Fox Television on the extreme right and, you know, various other sort of extreme right outfits like Breitbart and, you know, then you get sort of wacko um, online things like 4chan and 8chan and, and you know, Gateway Pundit and so on. Um, and then on the left, you have uh, all the usual suspects, CNN, uh, MSNBC, um, you know, you, you have, you know, NPR and various groups where you know where they're coming from politically. You know, it's all very predictable. Um, there are very few people down the centre anymore. 
um, you know, I'd say the New York Times is is pretty much uh, as centrist as it, as you can be, although it does lean somewhat to the left, of course. But um, you know, it's it's very difficult to find um, you know the straight path through in such a divided media landscape uh, where um, organisations are so openly contemptuous of one side and openly supportive of another. Um, you know, it's, there's a great sense of predictability in media coverage now. That's a worry, I think. Oh, it poses another question, doesn't it? Is it, is it commercially viable to live in the centre? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's a, a good question because, you know, there is the commercial imperative, of course, you know, um, pe people need to make money and... Uh, I, I think it is. I think there is a, um, you know, I mean, when I when I want to look at the news, I look at news all over the place um, because I'm interested in the news. I'm interested in the way people cover it. I'll look at Fox Television. I used to work at Fox Television once. Um, you know, I'll look at Fox Television. Um, I'll look at NPR, listen to NPR. I used to work for NPR too. Um, you know, I'll read the New York Times. I have great respect for the Times and, and many of his reporters are good friends of mine and I, I just think they do a phenomenal job. Likewise with the Washington Post. I have friends who've worked there. I read the Post. It's, a, you know, I think a fabulous paper. But I'll also read, you know, I'll look at Breitbart. I'll look at, I'll listen to all the, the extreme right-wingers and left-wingers wherever I can uh, to get, uh, in my view, um, you know, a, a great sense of, the, the clearest sense of what's being said out there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't take what Fox Television says as being gospel. Um, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to take these, you know, you've got to understand where these people are coming from and what they represent uh, in order to um, have things in perspective and context. And, uh, you know, it is... It is increasingly difficult to find someone down the centre, I think. Um, it is. It, we're talking to you, you know, 40 plus years down the track from when you started in journalism. Um, could you ever imagine when you first started in newspapers in the 70s that it would evolve into, this, into having this level of... Um, uh, did it, binary nature to it, this, this sort of partisanship to it? No, I, I, I think I was very naive when I first started. I didn't even realise that, you know, I, I, I thought the Sydney Morning Herald was, was like, you know, this magical place where truth, you know, from which truth emerged. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just thought... Um, Whatever was printed on the on the pages of the Sydney Morning Herald was true, um, and it was only later in in uh, life, as I started to um, understand more of the media and how it operates, that I realised that partisanship plays a very strong role in in uh, you know most media platforms. Um, but I didn't think it would expand to the extremes uh, that exist these days, and uh -huh. um, you know it's. I had no way of imagining, of course, in 1975, when I was granted a cadetship on the Herald, um, that um, something such as the internet would, would ever exist. Um, you know, um, there are 
platforms that have emerged uh, to to um, push news out there that were just unimaginable in those days. So, you know, there have been lots of developments that um, no one from the mid seventies could have ever predicted um, that now um, play a very important role in in uh, the way the media is um, broadcast and received and interpreted. And of course, there is all the um, you know the 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 fake the fake news, uh, you know, trolls and bots pushing out, um, you know, distortions. Um, we saw a lot of this in the, in the 2016 presidential campaign in the US, pushed out by Russia and Ukraine and so on, uh, Macedonia. <clears throat> These fake news um, uh, snippets going out on social media to distort public perception on things, um, generating, um, you know, non-existent, um, well, generating issues, um, stirring emotion, um, and, and that sort of thing uh, amongst groups that, um, uh, if they'd been left alone, um, would probably have reacted very differently in the political environment. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting way to kind of conclude. Uh, the conversation with you. Uh, Peter, I uh, appreciate your time today. What, where can people get their hands on How to Sell a Massacre, which chronicles the three-year COVID operation to look at the NRA? What's the best way of people getting hold of it? Well, I, I would um, suggest um, going to a local bookshop. Um, you know, it's in bookshops around Australia. Um, it is available on Amazon. Um but, you know, I like to support local bookshops. I love local bookshops. <laughs> I, I just think, uh, you know, um, I'm, I, I do appreciate Amazon ranking it as the number one bestseller in, in a, a number of categories, and that's gratifying to see that. That's great. Um, but uh, local bookshops um, around the country uh, do have it in stock, or at least most of them do, I think. Um, I've been, I'm in Australia at the moment, returning to America uh, early next week. Um, but uh, the bookshops I've been into, um, with a couple of rare exceptions in remote places, have, have had the book stocked. Um, so, yeah, pop into the local bookshop and, and ask for it. And if they don't have it, they can probably get it in, or I hope they can anyway. And it, right now with COVID, uh, it, it's critical to get, to get cash flow into businesses that would otherwise be... Uh, in a bit of strife. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I I love the idea of supporting local bookshops. You know, I I think they're critically important places. And um, you know, I've I've been very fortunate to have the support of um, you know some fabulous bookshops around Australia. Um, you know, in in um, pushing the sale of my book, How to Sell a Massacre, um, and I appreciate that very much. You know, I just think. We need these places to survive, and um, you know, I mean, COVID has presented all kinds of challenges, of course, for for bricks and mortar establishments. Um, you know, it's just great to see bookshops still open and people still going into them, um, albeit not in the same numbers as pre-COVID. But you know, hopefully, one day it'll get back to um, the sort of um, traffic that existed before this bloody virus. You know. <laughs> took over and changed everything we do and the way we behave. It's just been absolutely insane. 
you, you you'll be flying as you said you're flying back to the US straight into the election environment uh, which will be an interesting period of time for everybody around the world not just Peter Charlie I guess uh, but how long do you think you've still got in the US Peter um, well, I'll, I'll definitely be there for the election. Um, and um, I've been asked by uh, Al Jazeera to uh, relocate to Doha, the uh, capital of Qatar, where Al Jazeera is headquartered, um, to take up a, a, a new role there, uh, still in the investigative unit, um, a more senior managerial role, um, looking at the uh, investigative um, output from around the world, not just uh, the United States. Um, uh, that will probably um, happen once the COVID crisis passes. Uh, at the moment, Qatar has locked its borders. Um, uh, no one's allowed in or out, with the exception of um, local Qataris, I believe. Um, so, um, you know, that's an impediment to <laughs> what was uh, a plan to leave the US and move to Qatar. But uh, that'll happen, I think, probably, you know, fairly early in uh, 2021, I hope. Otherwise, I'll just remain in America and, until it um, until things free up. Uh, but certainly for the election, uh, you know, on November 3, I will be in the US and I'll be very interested to see how it all plays out. It's going to be fascinating. Peter, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate it. It's been great. Those of you listening, go check out Peter's book. Stay safe. Look after each other. And uh, no doubt, uh, if you're in if you're in Victoria, you probably need to click and collect from a from a bookstore. But it'll be a worthwhile read. Take care, and I'll join you again fairly shortly.